welcome to this week's episode of Biblio Banter. As a special treat for Halloween, we are doing an episode on scary books. I'm Erin. I'm Natalia. I'm Ellen. I'm Laura. So this week we're just presenting a list of scary books. I guess it was supposed to be scary books, Halloween themed or not themed, just being scary in general. But I guess I, um, well, when Erin asked this question in our like circle of Biblio banter people, I had two things that immediately jumped to uh, my head. And I guess those are just going to be two of my recommendations for Halloween period readings. Let's jump straight to the point. Here comes my first recommendation. One. This is a novel, The Seven Death of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton, published in 2018. And the fun fact about this one, what I like to tell every time I talk to people about this book is that the American edition actually is called The Seven and a Half Death of Evelyn Hardcastle. One might wonder how, like, where is this half a death came from? Basically, the information that I could find about it is just that the American publisher decided that the Americans like more, so there had to be more than just the seven death of poor Evelyn Hardcastle. But basically, the novel is a perfect read for autumn, for Halloween time, when you don't like it too scary, but you enjoy a good mystery, an old mansion surrounded by forests, a bunch of weird people being locked there for a celebration that nobody's happy about, and people dying like flies. Some mystery around the investigator who just jumps to a new body every day, and he has to relive the same day again and again until he discovers the murderer. So this is just basically, that was my first thing when I thought, what would I like to read for a Halloween period, for Halloween time? And I guess this is just a great book because it is complex. It is an homage to Agatha Christie's crime fiction and generally just a really well-written book. But the second uh, thing that came to my mind was, I think, even more impressive. And I'm just going to impose that on all of us today. Two, it's actually not just a book I want to recommend. It's actually also a TV show that has just aired this summer on HBO. I'm talking about Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff, published in 2016, and then the TV show is from 2020. I guess it did not score as well as people hoped it would score, just because 2020 has just been way too fascinating for all of us, and uh, a Lovecraftian horror does not scare that much anymore, I guess. So the book is basically set in uh, 1950s America, and it follows Atticus Black in the series and Atticus Turner in the book who is a huge fan of Lovecraft, as you might have guessed. And he goes on a search for his father to New England from, I believe, Chicago. So that's quite a way to go. And he and his uncle, they just drive to find his father, uh, meeting a lot of weird Lovecraftian monsters on the way. The fascinating part about this book is not just, you know, all of those tentacled creatures that show up on their way, but... I guess the everyday horror of a Jim Crow America, because the protagonists are also African-Americans. And basically, that's what I find so fascinating about this book, is how it combines the mystical, the weird horror as the genre of uh, H.P. Lovecraft with uh, basically social criticism and horror of 
racism in everyday lives of people. I love mixture of genres. And Lovecraft Country is exactly what it is. It's a fantasy. It's a road novel. It's the weird fiction as well. And at the same time, a lot of social critique is in there. I, If I'm allowed to quickly quote a few things I'd like to quote uh, from the book. There are two quotes that I think actually show this mixture of approaches and topics that Matt Ruff covers in this book quite nicely. So the first quote is about book love. This is one of the things, like the first episode of Lovecraft Country, a guy walks into a bookstore and he's, you know, like this buff veteran from Vietnam, looking very like rough. And then he's like, oh, books. (laughs) And he puts on his glasses and looks totally cute. Um, I can just recommend watching it if you are into horror. And this quote shows all the love for book in this novel. Two people, Atticus and George, are talking. And George says, But stories are like people, Atticus. Loving them doesn't make them perfect. You try to cherish their virtues and overlook their flaws. The flaws are still there, though. But you don't get mad, says Atticus. Not like Pop does. George answers, No, that's true. I don't get mad. Not at stories. They do disappoint me sometimes. He looked at the shelves. Sometimes they stab me in the heart. So if you're a book lover and you can tolerate horror, of course, this one is for you. But the other side of this book can be illustrated by another quote. That's the horror, the most awful thing, to have a child the world wants to destroy and know that you're helpless to help him. Nothing worse than that. Nothing worse. So I guess here you can see this is not just about monsters who try to bite people's heads off after the sunset, but also about just racism, society. Three. So I didn't look at scary stories. I looked at scary books. For example, in Harry Potter, in Harry's third year at Hogwarts, Hagrid starts teaching. And Hagrid has an interest in monsters because they're so cute and they're misunderstood. So the book he picks is, of course, The Monster Book of Monsters by Eduardus Lima. And this book attacks children and the bookshop owner and everybody. The book also attacks other books and Florsham Blots. They swear that they'll never stock them again because the books keep destroying themselves. So they have, aside from their content, the, the book form is dangerous both to itself and to the people who want to read it. The trick to calming this book is stroking the spine. And if you stroke the spine, they will be calm and they will open and you'll be allowed to read them and use them. And in the film, these books look like, kind of like spiders with the eyes on the front. They have like tentacles around the edges almost, not not very long, but tentacle-ish looking things. And at the Warner Brothers shop actually sells a plush version of this scary book. So if you need a strange pillow, you can have a spider book monster pillow. Four. So speaking of books with eyes, another book I looked at is the spell book from Hocus Pocus. And this is from the 1993 Disney film. The book is owned by Winifred Sanderson. She's the eldest of three witch sisters. And supposedly this book was given to her by the devil himself. 
and it's bound in human skin and it's full of dark magic. And what's really interesting about this book, in my opinion, is the connection between the book and the user, in this case, uh, the owner, Winifred Sanderson. She, from far away, can talk to the book. And there's a scene in the film where she's in her cottage in the woods and the book is far across town. And she calls to the book to identify itself to her. And when it's opened, it emits a light so she knows where it is. Um, there's another scene where she's being hanged and the book falls to the ground and she summons it to open to a certain page so that she can read a spell. So there is this, this really strong connection. And even when the book is separated from her and other people are using it, it's dangerous because of its content and its own kind of consciousness, which you also see uh, symbolized with just the eye of the book. It, it closes its eye or opens its eye kind of showing that it's maybe a little bit devious. And nothing good can come of this book, according to Thackeray Binks, who makes an appearance as a cat in this film. Just a couple of trivia facts about the prop. Uh, it was displayed for a time at um, the Orlando Planet Hollywood, which for people who don't know, Planet Hollywood is kind of like the Hard Rock Cafe, except for um, movie props. And it's a chain restaurant. And people are making brownies that look like this book from Hocus Pocus, which I think is kind of funny. And that's a, apparently a new popular Halloween treat. But what's really interesting about the Hocus Pocus book and is going to turn into a small side tangent is that it's made with human skin. Human skin binding is also called Anthropodermic bibliopagy, which I said right for the first time. <laughs> this is actually not that uncommon. It seems kind of gross and weird, but apparently in the 19th century, it was fairly popular. Book Riot has a really great article on this topic if you're interested, and we'll post that in the blog. There are some examples already from the 16th century, but again, the 19th century, it became quite popular. Um, it was an extension of punishment in some ways. So people who were convicted murderers um, that were executed, their skin was then used to bind the texts of their trial or their criminal history. For example, John Horwood was the first person to be hanged at the Bristol jail in the UK. And the papers about his crime were bound in his skin. Then there's another example of a person named William Burke. He originally was dealing in the sale of corpses for medical school dissection purposes, but then he couldn't get corpses. He couldn't dig up corpses fast enough, so he just started killing people. And he sold about 15 corpses before he was caught. So when he was executed, his skin was also used to bind a pocketbook, which is an interesting choice. And they're not really sure why his skin was used to bind this pocketbook or how that happened. It seems like his body was used for dissection at a medical school and then some skin went missing and it showed up later as a pocketbook. Uh, things people do. And then also this is kind of a collectible 
item. So for example, there's a person called Ludovic Bula, and he had at least two books bound in human skin. One was a 16th century text on female virginity, and that was bound in the skin of an unknown woman. And another one was Destinies of the Soul, which is another French book. And this one is actually located at the Harvard Library from the 1880s, and it was also bound in human skin. And then it was a memorializing thing, and some people wanted their skin to be used in book bindings for loved ones to keep later on. Seems unusual. Or doctors would use the skin of people who died from certain diseases to cover their medical books. Yeah. And so currently there are 18 books that are confirmed to be bound in human skin. It's kind of hard to tell. Once uh, skin is tanned, they look pretty similar to other animal skins. But there is a group, uh, it's called the Anthropodermic Book Project, and they test books. There have been 50 that have been called into question, and 18 of the 31 that they've tested have been confirmed to be bound in human skin. And ways that they're tipped off about this is either there's an inscription in the book that says that it was bound in human skin, um, which is not always true, or there are rumors that the book was bound in human skin for whatever reason, so then they test it. It was also apparently a fairly popular practice during the Reign of Terror in France, Um, So when people were executed, it wasn't unusual for their skin to show up as a book. So that's kind of a weird practice, is it not? It is like bibliomania taken to a very new level. Yes. And I mean, people have used animal skins for centuries to, to wear or to bind books, or it's a protective thing. And our skin protects our bodies, so could also protect the body of books but it has this extra scary element because you have this idea of something being dead that was human so we attach more meaning to a skin that was once on a human and then now it's on this book wasn't it one of the Stephen King novels where a fan uh, kidnapped a writer and made him write a book the way she wanted it to be and then she used his skin after she killed him, after he finished the book. And then I think it's Misery or something. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I didn't remember that element of the story, actually. But it makes sense. But then at the same time, using, you know, we get romanticized now in this concept of, oh, it's human, human skin, but there's a practicality to it as well, I guess. If, you know, you're dead and you need to bind a book, I don't know. I still question is human skin as durable as leathers we use otherwise? That would be my big question because human skin seems not as tough. I guess it depends on how you treat it. That was mentioned in one of the articles I read. Um, It's a little bit thinner than other animal skins. Five. You know, in the Evil Dead movie, we also have a book of the dead that was discovered and it was bound in human skin. 
And it's also the same element. The book in itself is maybe not that dangerous, but once you speak the words or the incantations, then it becomes very dangerous. So I like this concept if you look at, you know, maybe the history of spell books that humans are needed to make the book effective. And I like this kind of, yeah, okay, we need to, we need to join together with our books and, you know, figure it out that way. A little etymology on the word spell. So as a noun, we have, it means an incantation. Um, well, okay. One of the meanings um, for spell as a noun is incantation, but the, the word spell is from Old English and means story, history, narrative, discourse, um, which I think is quite interesting. And so, for example, Beowulf would have been a spell. Um, and then this can be compared to Old Norse and Old High German. Similar words um, in Old Norse, S-P-J-A-L-L, spjall, perhaps? I'm not fluent in Old Norse <laughs> um, or uh, the Old High German spell or Gothic spill. And I don't think this is related, but I thought it's quite interesting that we have this term to spill the bean or phrase to spill the beans and spill almost like tell story, right? So story the beans. <laughs> And then we yeah, it was only in the 1570s that it started to take on the, or was at least documented to have the meaning incantation. And also you have the term gospel with that word spell in it. But then I think we also have used the word grimoire to mean spell book. But we go from oh. book love to stroking the spine. I don't know if this episode needs an over 18 warning. We're just getting a little crazy here. Indeed it is. Six. Laura, what did you prepare for us today? Well, I'd like to make a case first for Gothic literature in general. And by Gothic literature, I mean specifically British American literature um, written in English. It'd be interesting to explore the notion of the Gothic in other cultures. But for now, I'm going to focus on this. The first gothic literature book or what's considered to be the first is The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole in 1764. And if I remember the book correctly, it has these this great painting in the hallway of this castle that every time you pass it, the eyes follow you. And the way it's written is very scary and mood provoking. So we have this tradition for a long time and I find gothic literature really interesting because it's the notion of um, ideas of things that obscure reality, um, the notion of something that terrifies us because we can't see beyond the veil or we can't see what's in the cupboard or we can't see something and it's kind of, I always saw it as an, an exploration of what makes us human in our emotions. And I find this interesting that it kind of predates 
um, the period of the Gothic, when we do learn more of, about humanity and we start to develop ideas of poverty and childhood and race and sexuality. So I think it has this very um, good background in leading us to who we are as people, not that we did the best in Victorian times with understanding these concepts and dealing with them fairly, but I think it's very interesting. And then, of course, Freud uses notions of the uncanny, which is something very prevalent in Gothic literature in his studies on psychoanalysis. So the Gothic really is something that I think carries into today. It's a genre that doesn't specifically belong to a time period, but it belongs to kind of this aspect of ourselves where we realize we must pull back the veil no matter how terrified we are and kind of see reality. And with that being said, my big text on this would be anything from Edgar Allan Poe, actually. He's in the mid 19th century, an American writer. Most of his works are very short. You can read them pretty easily. Most of them are available online. The Poe Society of Baltimore has a really great website that does a lot of bibliographic work about the different versions of his stories and where they come from. And all of the texts are, I think most of the texts are available there for free. I would like to talk about The Mask of the Red Death because it is so relevant to what's going on right now. It was written in 1842. It was not very well received at the time. It is a story about an illness that overtakes a country and a prince who decides he's going to have fun and keep his people or his, not his people, but his friends close in his abbey locked in to stay away from the Red Death. And I will read a passage from this. It's not a connected passage. I'm taking bits and pasting them together and I'll try not to give the big spoilers. So here we go. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the madness and the horror of blood. But Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court. And with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his crenellated abbeys. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. So there you go. That's the great quote from The Mask of the Red Death. I also wanted to share one bit of modern reception of the story from Google, um, what this person said about the Mask of the Red Death. Uh, the name is Lavender Forest and it's from 10 months ago. So it's a pretty, pretty recent note. Very good story with an important moral about how death will always be inevitable. But can I just say that the negative reviews are stupid? Like, people hate this book for literally the most dumbest reasons possible. 
People say the story is too hard to read, it's too sad, bad representation of disease, and so on and so forth. Bruh, this story is popular and is required for many students in school to read for a good reason. Stop acting like Edgar Allan Poe and his stories are trash when you know that they're actually pretty good. You all just won't give it a chance because you all are just too pathetic. Apathetic, sorry. Good find. Uh, Laura, what's your favorite story of Edgar Allan Poe? It's hard to pick one favorite because they all suit different moods and different ideas. If you really like detective novels, then The Purloined Letter is really great. I like the idea of the doppelganger and William Wilson a lot. The Telltale Heart always kind of freaked me out with this notion of I already don't like hearing like my heartbeat or seeing bones or anything. So this notion of the heartbeat just existing and you're hearing it, that's really scary to me. I feel like he sets a really great tone. And for me, with any kind of literature that's meant to be scary, I feel like you have to participate in that somehow. Like we, we're not just going to be scared because something's scary. We have to have a good relationship between what the author's written and be able to build up this fear in us, or at least that's how reading something scary works for me. So you have to be amenable to being scared while the author also has to write in such a way that helps you be scared. So I think it's one of these things that I feel like it's a more personal relationship with an author because you're really trying to create an emotion when you're reading or you're trying to find something there. So you have to work together. But the reading experience also really affects that, like where and when you're reading. For example, when I was trying to research for this episode, I started looking things up at night and I had to stop. It's a little bit, it was a little bit too close to bedtime there. Yep. Yeah, and I was watching The Evil Dead just kind of for fun, and I forgot how gruesome it is, how scary. Like, one time I actually screamed, and my husband, he was like, "What? what's going on? What are you doing? But it, you do, and but you create the setting on purpose. So I think that, you know, you try to make it so you will be scared. I yeah, think. actually, I also was preparing for this episode and I tried to watch. I'm praising Lovecraft Country as a, as a series, but I only watched like two episodes because then it was too scary to watch it alone. So I'm still waiting for some company to finish it. Seven. Yeah, so moving straight off of that and participation in scary books, one of the scary books that I wanted to talk about is the book or actually novella Drop by author Koji Suzuki. Um, he is the writer of the Ring trilogy. So some of you might have seen the Ring, either the American Hollywood Ring film, or um, there was also a Japanese version of it. I really recommend the trilogy. It's great and not exactly like the Hollywood um, version of the Ring. So Drop is a novella that is printed on a roll of toilet paper, and it's manufactured by the Hayashi Paper Company. Uh, this came out in 2009, and the Hayashi Paper Company describes it as, quote, a horror experience in the toilet. So if that's what you need. And the book is written in the second person, and it's set in a public bathroom. So imagine you're on the toilet, presumably reading the story um, that takes place 
in a bathroom. And according to the Japanese Times, toilets in Japan were traditionally tucked away in a dark corner of the house due to religious beliefs. Parents would tease children that a hairy hand might pull them down into the dark pool below. So this is a very immersive story. And it's cheap. It's only 210 yen. So it's about two euros, but only available in Japanese. I don't think they're still making them, but you can maybe find a copy, a copy, a roll on eBay. So similar to a roll, there are also scrolls of scary books, <laughs> one of which is the ancient Egyptian book of the dead. Again, I think we consider this book to be a scary book because it has to do with death, which is something many, many people are scared of. I just did a very brief research on this, but it's quite an interesting concept for, <laughs> for book studies. So it's from about 1700 BCE, and it's a collection of spells that were buried with the dead. They were either inscribed onto the shrouds that uh, the corpses would be buried in, or on the coffins, or on papyrus scrolls that would then be included. And they were magic spells and incantations for the people to almost battle against the gods in the afterlife and or safely ensure their passage to the afterlife. They were for royals or courtiers or officials. And there were definitely, there was a financial barrier because the cost of these scrolls was about half a year's salary for a, a typical laborer. Um, so you had to have money to do this. And it's, it started off just for the royals, but then more and more people were including these in their burial possessions. Um, and they were unique to the person they were buried with. There have been almost 200 uh, different spells have been found, but each individual person would have um, a different collection buried with them. And they're not only magic, they're religious. And there's this kind of fine line between magic and religion in ancient Egypt. And it was the spoken and or written word was considered to have magical powers. So that's really interesting that I think like in um, modern references to the uh, ancient Egyptian book of the dead, it is maybe still a scroll, but it's a book. And it's one thing that covers the the whole concept but it was this really unique personal collection and it was more religious than scary it's just scary because people associate scary things with death and also what they don't know but also the really early the hieroglyphics weren't completed so for example uh hieroglyphics of animals or humans they weren't drawn completely because that would give the hieroglyphics even more power. I thought that was interesting too. It's worth doing a lot more research on these. Um... Definitely. And I think this is where you end up with, you know, links between Western culture and oral cultures. Because if you think about Sequoia, who developed the syllabary for the Cherokee, when he first came upon a book and written words, he called it talking leaves, because for him, the power was in what the words would be spoken. So I think it's really interesting that spell books or grimoires or the books of the dead kind of take us back to when we had more 
orality in our culture and how the books needed, again, I think I said this earlier, to be spoken in order for the words to have the power. And I think this is a link to orality in general. And scary stories specifically have a strong, I think, a stronger connection to orality, maybe also fairy tales, but scary stories, you have this idea of sitting around a campfire or um, at a sleepover, and you you really just try to tell something as gruesome as possible to scare the other people. Maybe it yeah. also has to do with time, as we already talked about. It's typically at night that you're telling these stories. It's not like breakfast scary stories, which should be a new thing, but... Well, it's a yeah, shared... It's- yeah, it's a shared experience. I think being mm. scared, and this is something that we relate often to being a shared experience. Like even if you're casting a spell, there's usually a group and you're in a circle and you're, you know, it's more than one person. So it's a, a group experience. And as you mentioned earlier, this idea of the author-reader connection, you are trying to tell a scary story and gauge the, the audience reaction as you are telling the story. Nine. So another book that I chose is Powers of Darkness, Macht Mjokrana, something like that in Icelandic. This was published first in serial form in an Icelandic newspaper over the years 1900 to 1901. And it tells the story of a vampire from Transylvania called Count Draculitz. And if that sounds familiar, uh, it's because Powers of Darkness is an Icelandic and perhaps unauthorized version of Dracula. This was discovered only in 2014 that this translation of Dracula is actually more of an adaptation. A literary researcher called Hans Cornelius discovered this, and now we can actually buy a translation, an interesting twist, we can buy a translation of Powers of Darkness into English with notes from Hans Cornelius about the differences between the books. And one of the more interesting differences, I think, is that it is, quote, markedly sexier, end quote, than the English version. There's also some speculation as to how much of any involvement Bram Stoker had in this version, and it might have been based on some of his earlier draft of the novel. Ten. And then lastly, I have Handbook for the Recently Deceased. This is a book that appears in the 1988 Tim Burton film Beetlejuice. In the film, spoiler alert, the two main characters die in the beginning. And after they die, they come home and find the Handbook for the Recently Deceased, a very dry manual that guides newly dead into their new phase of existence. And this was really funny because the whole death experience in Beetlejuice is seen as elaborate bureaucracy and the handbook is one part of that. The book that was used as a prop sold at auction for close to $7,000. And they do have, the, the prop book does have a couple of pages in it with actual text and it is actually incredibly dry. But what's also interesting, I think, is that they have page that lists who published the book. So for example, the book is published by Handbook for the Recently Deceased Press, Inc., all rights reserved, printed in the United States, first printing in 1620, and then it lists all 49 printings thereafter on the 
the first page, going only up to the mid 20th century. And if anyone really loves Beetlejuice, you can buy a notebook in the form of the handbook that contains quotes from the film. However, the book's creator or publisher says that you can fill it with your absurd thoughts, but no matter what you write, it will probably read like stereo instructions. That's fantastic. I need that notebook, maybe. We had a thing when I was in college that you used three movies to explain yourself to your parents, and Beetlejuice was my main one. How did they I take like it? the idea of you working for that publisher. <laughs> the handbook for the recently deceased mm -hmm. publisher, because is that a mortal or a deceased publishing house? Hard to tell. Great. So that was our collection of interesting book-related Halloween, creepy, scary, interesting, curious things. Uh, we hope you liked it. We are looking forward to your comments and uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.